Listen, he doesn't have a place. So I'm taking him back to Earth. Oh, Christ. Hey, what's bugging you? I thought we agreed. Okay, no ties. But you don't have to rub my face in it. Not your face, honey. Not tonight. As usual, we're sitting down to talk about uh, three movies because we always uh, record three at a time and then we, we uh, stockpile them. Yeah. But as far as the listener is concerned, we're discussing Dario Argento's Tenebrae. And so a bit of background. Uh, in Italy, they have a genre of films called giallo. Giallo means, I believe, yellow. And it derives from a series of a paperback series of thrillers with yellow covers. You sort of a uniform yellow theme. They're what you might call pulp crime novels, roughly speaking. And that term then transferred to the movies, which are giallo singular. If you want to be pretentious, it's gialli, plural. Mm. And the reason I mention all this, this is one of those, and it's by one of the most distinguished, it may not be the word, but certainly one of the most famous and prolific Directors in the genre? Not terribly prolific. He, okay. I mean, at this stage, he was doing maybe one film every two or three years. So he was Dario um, Argento is his Dario name. Dario Argento. Yeah. Now, unless I'm sadly mistaken, Dario Argento is the man who did uh, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, yes. Bird with a Crystal Plumage, and Cat of Nine Tails, which yes. are three. They're all from the seventies, I think. Yeah. And they're quite early in the cycle of of these. Just for anybody who's trying to work out what kind of movies we're talking about, they're, they're sort of like Italian slasher movies, pretty much. That's not into... You're going to... Yeah, they are. I mean, there's certain rules to cover a giallo. Just to give people a flavour of what it, yeah. you've never heard of it, what sort of thing it is. Just the ballpark. Typically, you will have... Uh, it's a crime. It's a crime mystery. And it will nearly always be... The person investigating will very rarely be a cop. It's usually... Quite often, it's an artist. Quite often. Or somebody... Uh, like an amateur sleuth. Yeah. Yes. Um, and they will have... There's this terrible phrase that's called testimony ocularii. Which means eyewitness testimony? Exactly, yes. Yeah. Just a very pretentious way of saying an eyewitness. They've seen something and they've seen a crime. Sometimes they know they've seen a crime, sometimes they don't. Oh. And that is typically yeah. what powers the plot, is them trying to work out what it is, what's happened, or what they know, or what they don't know. So all, with this mystery element, we're already in a very different territory to an American slasher movie. We absolutely are. These, quite often, Giallo are confused with horror, and that's mainly because of Dario Argento, I think. Well, well there is some overlap by the filmmakers, isn't there? There is. Um, you know, things like Suspiria. Suspiria is not a Giallo. Suspiria cool. is a horror. Just, anybody who hasn't seen it, it's a very cool movie. It's a hell of a film. <laughs> Um, but it's definitely, although it has elements. I mean, you've got a dancer in that one who is investigating the, the uh, yeah. missing friend. So yeah. it has elements of it, but it's nowhere near as this close. This is the amateur detective and often the female amateur detective in these um, films. Or is it? Well, no. It's very rarely a woman. No, no. I would say more often than not it's a man. Yeah. But there's nearly always a woman involved somewhere who will be a sort of femme fatale type figure. Yeah, the, and these movies, you said that the, the horror movies like Suspiria overlap with the giallo, yeah. jelly, but it, the other way around too, because the a giallo is often quite horrific in the murders that take it, place. Well, a lot of that is down to Argento. 
peak Hinder started the ball rolling there. Although oh, you can go back a little earlier and you've got the German uh, Krimi films. Which a lot of Edgar Wallace, I believe. Yeah. Is that right? Um, some of those are a bit grisly, but nowhere near as close. So they're, they're very similar to Giallo. So we'd be talking about, for those, the 1960s, I guess. Yeah, late 60s. Okay, just for anybody who doesn't know, Edgar Wallace was an incredibly prolific... Uh, well, in a way, he's sort of the Stephen King of his day. He wrote lots and lots and lots, and he sold millions and millions of copies. They were thrillers. Uh, I think he, he also wrote the script for King Kong, or at least the original story for King Kong. And he's completely forgotten in, in the UK, but he, in Germany, he's kind of a, a god. He was yeah. a British writer, but in Germany... Like David they, Hasselhoff. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. You, you sort of freaked me out there a bit because you, you were comparing writers and actors and I didn't get the con connection. But yes, he's a, he's an actor from Baywatch. Who's, yeah, so they often embrace these cultural figures who are not appreciated at home, at least anymore. So in Germany, they had loads of Edgar Wallace movies and TV shows and that's what you're, you're talking about. Yeah. And the other thing with a giallo is that it will usually have a multinational cast. And that's not for any artistic reason. It's purely financial. It means that they can push the film in every territory with a star from a number of countries. Yeah, but that's, you're just talking about Italian cinema now, aren't you? Well, not necessarily. Well, the spaghetti westerns were the same, were they not? Uh, well, yeah, but it's, it's the same crowd of producers and directors. It's the same era. But if you go to something like, say, Fellini or The Near Realist, they're not using cast from lots of different countries. So this was sort of a 60s and 70s phenomena? Yeah, I'd say. I mean, it's, it's right on that precipice of home video which Tenebrae actually is well and truly in that. I mean, that is yeah, home video when territory. did home video kick in? Early 80s. Yeah, okay, and the reason that's we're talking about that is that it then began to influence the kind of movies that were made, hmm. but we'll get to that uh, here and in, in other. But anybody who's interested in that discussion should check out uh, uh, Zone Troopers, I would say, for a start, as a, as a straight-to-video movie. Yeah, yeah, or indeed one of the others that we're going to be going to, anything from Canon. Yeah, Canon Home Video, their output was entirely designed. I mean, that, none of that was really designed to bother the box office. It was okay. definitely video. Yeah. Uh, any others that we've recorded that you would like to cite as, as great uh, straight-to-video fodder? Um, yes. <laughs> the Apple. No, not the Apple. What am I thinking of? We have done another one. Well, the Apple is a Canon film, but it's not It's not a classic straight-to-video one. Are you we do have about 18 of these in the gate, so it's hard to... to also, remote. we're about to do 10 to Midnight, which is definitely in that territory. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And But what about uh, Valley Girls versus Zombies? Um, yeah, Night, Night, of Night of the Comet, not necessarily, but Vibes especially uh, was unlikely ever to hit a cinema properly. That was always going to be a home video. And My Chauffeur. Well, my chauffeur, I, I would certainly agree. Anyway, so we <laughs> have this genre, which is an interesting kind of variant on, on the uh, slasher. In fact, it precedes the slasher movie as we know it. It's a crime movie with gothic or horrific aspects, usually involves uh, an amateur investigator, which is very interesting. I hadn't, hadn't realised that, but now that you mention that, that is definitely a hallmark of the genre. Usually got quite a sexual element. Yes, and usually... Most of the time, if it's a good yellow, very well shot. And Not, also with usually with a great film score. Yeah, um, great music. You, if Ennio Morricone is not around, you either get Goblin or you get Fabio Fritzi or you get um, Guido and Maurizio De Angelis. Right. They're your, they're your main go-to guys. They'll cover it. I mentioned those three early animal-titled uh, Argento movies: that The Flies on Grey Velvet, The Cat of Nine Tails, and The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Because they're classics. And so I was sort of working my way around to asking, why did you make me watch Tenebrae instead of any of those? Because I feel like we'll get more value of discussion from Tenebrae than we will from the others. It's 
Because it's not as good, I would submit. Right. Did you <laughs> like it? I thought it was tedious. Tedious? Wow. Okay. So this is going to be good. Well, I, for, for a start, I thought it was... I expect these movies to be tight and short, and this was quite long, I felt. Um, I think it's one of Argento's cleverest scripts. Okay, the you're not entirely wrong about that, because there is sort of Agatha Christie cleverness going on in, in uh, Who's the Killer is. I, I certainly agree with that. Um, I felt that, it, you see... It didn't have a Morricone score. I'm interested <laughs> in who the guys who did do the score. Are they the guys from Goblin? It's Goblin, yeah. So it's, uh, it's mainly Claudio Simonetti by this stage. Yeah, but, but, yeah. but yeah. so it's Simonetti and some other names. It they didn't say Goblin. They are hardly ever credited the same way on one film twice. Sometimes it's Goblin, sometimes it's The Goblin, sometimes it's Goblin, sometimes it's just Simonetti, sometimes it's surnames. In this case, I think it's surnames. It's Simonetti and, a bun- and his, uh, his fellow the, Goblin. The two others whose names I cannot think of. Yeah, Sacchetti, yeah. I think, is one of them. We'll, we'll look them up in the course of this. Um, so I felt that it... It wasn't, I didn't think it was that, if I was going to sit down to watch an Argento Jello, I was kind of disappointed that this was it. Interesting. But well, there's a lot to talk about. I, th- I did feel that it was a long movie, but is there any truth about an hour and a half. It's really? about normal. What possibly I didn't consider, because it didn't occur to me that you haven't seen most of the others, this is very much a reaction from Argento. It's late in the cycle, so it's sort of a, a revisionist one, isn't it? It's not even that late. Oh. I mean, there's still, there's worse to come. <laughs> but there's not, um, it did follow it's, I think it's his last out. great film uh, for what he does. What was happening was they were getting a lot of criticism for um, the treatment of women in Giallo. Um, bear in mind, this is a very late <laughs> Giallo. This is 82. And most of them I wonder why. Oh, hence yes. this film, which is about an author whose killer... Um, who's killer in his books that he's writing is killing women and he's getting attacked at all sides by Well, I don't journalists. know about all sides, but he does, get, he does get it from this feminist journalist yeah. who then is stripped naked and murdered <laughs> for, for, for the, the entertainment of the audience. Yes. Genuinely, I think that's just Argento having a laugh with us. Yeah. But what is interesting, would you say that this was a film where lots of women get killed? Well, the... Feminist journalist, who turns out to be a lesbian, and her bisexual lover, who's a woman, both get killed. Mm. So that that's two. There's a woman at the end who gets her, her arm lopped off, is there yeah. not? So that, that's three. I, the, what about the girl? Does the girl who gets chased by the dog get killed? Yeah, there's loads of women get killed in this film. But it's still five for five. Or are there five men killed yeah. as well? But you don't remember those deaths. Well, that's... You see, part of the argument... I mean, we're getting into deep waters here, but part yeah. of the argument about... You know, movies uh, in movies tend to have women as victims, right? Yes. But what I think people are failing to understand, which seems to me so bloody obvious, the reason that women tend to be victims in films, and there's a lot of uh, condemnation of this because because some people apparently feel, and I find it hard to believe that they they have such a simplistic view, is that that this is because women are hated and are being exploited. It's much simpler than that. If you want the audience to sympathise with a character and you're not very good at developing character or you don't have time or you just can't be arsed, the best way to get somebody to, to get the audience on the side of a character, make them sympathise and care about the character, is to make it a woman. I mean, they, we care more about women than men. And if you make it an attractive woman, uh, this is just the way human nature is. People are invested in her. So if you want to have a victim... Uh, in a movie and you want the audience to care about them and you can't be arsed to develop them as a three-dimensional character make them attractive women I well, would say Argento's 
defence when interviewed about this because he's often been accused of being a misogynist yeah. is that it's quite the opposite. He said, I love women. I love filming them. Um, one of, I, he tells a story about his um, uh, mother when he was growing up. His mother was a photographer. She used to photograph a lot of actresses. And he said he'd watch as they were made up and their hair was done and they were put the in dresses and they were perfectly posed. And then they would take the photo and that would be the photo forever. And he said he just became obsessed with trying to make women look as good as possible on screen. But also he said, you know, it's so much more fun to work with them than it is to work with a man who he doesn't get as much of a kick out of filming. So it, yeah. it's not, there's no hatred there. And uh, as this film, I think, I think this film does get across that idea that it's not because they're women. What I was trying to say, and I, I, I know I went on at great length and I, I didn't really say it, I was quite clumsy. What I was trying to say, in short, is that if you have a story in which a bunch of men get killed, nobody gives a shit. No. And whereas if women are getting killed, <laughs> you, you, you are invested in it uh, and you do care because you don't want a woman to be killed. It's just, it's just kind of a gender bias that's deep in our culture. But it's not the gender bias that people who are making claims about misogyny uh, think it is, I would argue. Do you know, I saw uh, there was a review of Wonder Woman, uh, the film came out a couple of years ago. Which I loved. And I'm somebody... waiting to say if you, see if you say that you loved it or you hated it. I really liked good. it. Good, great. I thought it was we good. We rarely agree. But there was a, a reviewer who said that the slaughter of the Amazons was one of the most unpleasant things they'd seen. And I was thinking, you've had all of these other films of late where armies of men have been yeah. slaughtered. You've got Lord of the Rings, you've got Star yeah. Wars with all the clone troopers and that. Yes. Um, once it's about eight or nine Amazons, because there's not many of them that die anyway, um, it, you're right. People react differently. And we care. I, we care more deeply. I mean, obviously we would care more deeply still about children, but nobody's going to make a movie about children being killed because it goes too far. It just becomes too much. Because the trouble with a shorthand like that is that then directors will get lazy, which Argento is more than guilty of, of not making particularly nice characters or even rounded characters. Well, Because you the, still have to care about the character. That's what, where I sort of began my long-winded argument, is that if you are going to be lazy, just stick a woman on the screen, preferably an attractive one. People will care, kill it, care if she gets killed. Stick a man on the screen, nobody gives a fuck. Unless you've built them up as a character, and yeah. you do care. And this is where Turnabray has a bit of a problem, because the first victim, the first female victim... Is already a shoplifter, and it's she already and she's uh, no she doesn't upset the dog does she the other one does the, the reason she's, I'm looking blank is that all the killings began to blur very quickly so well, she's the, the first one, one is the one that gets fed fed pages of a book at Razor Point. Uh, does the guy come into her house? Yes, because the the uh, she she's being pursued by an evil homeless man, but he's not the he's not the threat. It turns yeah. out doesn't he look it through the window and see her being killed by somebody else? Yes. Right, okay. I've, I've, of the ten killings, I've managed to place this one. The, trust me, folks, they all began to blur. I Well, like I say, I adore Tenebrae. It's my, I think probably my favourite Argento, well, so I this should be must, an interesting conversation. I figured you must regard it highly, otherwise you wouldn't have nominated it. But, okay, so one of my problems is, why begin in New York? The, okay, so the guy, the guy who writes these books, which are receiving the sort of condemnation that Argento's movies were, were uh, receiving, is a best-selling novelist, uh, and he, he flies from New York to Rome, and the rest of the movie takes place in Rome. This is a, another tradition of Giallo, is somebody arriving in, in Italy, usually Italy, um, as a first-time visitor or an unfamiliar visitor. Which helps the international marketing of the movie, I guess. To a point, but also just means that they're a fish out of water and they don't oh, understand how that good point. 
that how that area works and you're not as familiar with your surroundings. So if They're you look at Suspiria vulnerable. as well, it's superb because she just arrives in... She's like, isn't she an American ballet student or something yeah. like that? Yeah. And uh, yeah, she just arrives. She's alone. She, she hasn't even got a taxi. She hasn't got somewhere to stay. So, Can't speak the language, or maybe she can. But yeah, but that would be a, an addition. Of it. <laughs> yeah. I suppose everybody's dubbed, right? Yeah. Um, so this is, I mean, the start in New York is pretty much just a, a traditional. This yeah. guy is headed to another country, but also he's got. A, but we need to know some... that he has links to New York in order for one of the, the red, herrings. red herring to yeah work. Absolutely, uh, and also there is I'm. I've been a bit unfair by saying that it was tedious. I just felt that it outstayed its welcome. But it does have some cleverness because it begins with this guy on a bicycle. And he, he rides his bicycle to the airport and there's a chauffeur-driven Rolls Royce shadowing him and the, the chauffeur picks up the bike and hands him his bag. Yeah. So he's like a rich guy who's cycling for exercise. So that's kind of nice, isn't it? Well, that's not actually how it starts. It starts with a book being burned. Oh, that's true. I, you see, uh, from that point on, I was sort of not really on this movie's side because I remember all I've got is these vivid, quite uh, ancient memories of the the other Jally that I saw by her. And they were really, the, the other Argento, the early ones, really striking visually. And I didn't think that that... Yeah, by this him. stage, he's got a very different style. I mean, but then that's partly due to the era. Those ones have the look of 60s films even though they're... which i kind of love you know yeah and i agree i think they look beautiful but by this stage film had moved on and we're in 1982 now very few well, films looked as beautiful as those did they didn't exactly. have that technicolor it's, look so i i didn't like it from that point of view. yes so there's a book burning and uh is there some some quotations at the there's front? a voiceover from the book tenebrae which at this stage we don't know is that guy's book or anything else but basically you've got the destruction of a book at the beginning of things so already you've got art being destroyed which is a common theme throughout this film. Uh, I just quickly, I wanted to say that the guy I was talking about, who's Peter Neal, the author of these best-selling uh, thrillers in which women are killed horribly, is played by Anthony Franciosa. Anthony yeah. Franciosa. Who, it, it's a curious performance from him. I, I have a feeling, I can't remember for sure, but I got a feeling he and Argento did not get on. He, he's not great in it, but his his agent, who's waiting for him in Rome... John Saxon. It's John Saxon, who's <laughs> great. And he was... He was Diabolic and Diabolic, wasn't he? No. Okay, wasn't he? No. Um, he was He was the dad in Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. Um, but no, Danger Diabolic was... Andrew and, 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 uh, Something Law. Uh, John, oh, Mike, it John was. Michael Law. Now yeah. that you say so, yeah. I'm, yeah. So did... Well, I really like... John uh, Philip Law, sorry. I really like John Saxon. Uh, has he done any John other... Saxon has done a shed load of films. No, but, but any any other Italian... Well, any other... Loads. Gialli. Loads. I mean, he his name comes up as frequently as Adolfo Celli. You know, if you get con John Saxon in your opening titles, you're, you're in for a treat, but only a, a two-day shoot. He's not going to hang around the country. So I'm quickly looking to see if I... You see, you, I was wrong for it because I thought he was the guy in Diabolic, and I'm completely wrong about He's that. He's in but... uh, Enter the Dragon. Yeah, I saw that when I just went to his IMDb page. But There's I, a fantastic moment on the commentary track on the DVD of Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, uh, Wes Craven is needling John Saxon all the way through, and he has this great thing where he says, uh, so John, playing a cop, was that a stretch for you? <laughs> well, he was in Starsky and Hutch, wasn't he? Well, he played cops and lieutenants oh, a he, lot. He, he plays the vampire in Starsky and Hutch, so he wasn't a cop at all in that, but he does play a lot of cops. No, I thought he was... Really good. He's got and he's got the most stylish jacket in the movie. I thought. <laughs> and hat. He's got a nice little hat. I thought the hat would be a plot point because they make such a fuss about it, but I it's know. not. I, it's a very strange sequence that, but it's very typically Argento around that time. Um, you get a similar thing in Profondo Rosso as well. He has little details that he likes to throw in, which 
I think just stem from conversations he's had with other people. Now, just to, to jump deep into the movie, you're <clears> talking <throat> about his ability as a filmmaker. Yes. There was one sequence in this. I know I started out by saying it was a teacher's movie and sort of and, uh, dishing it, but there's an extraordinary sequence where it's where the feminist journalist, the lesbian journalist and her girlfriend are in a house and the killer's on the outside and the camera just rises up. It's extraordinary. It was, it was trippy. I Isn't mean, it I, insane? Do you know how they did that? Uh, well, you see, I, I'm not even interested in the technical... I, I, I am interested in the technical uh, <clears throat> side, but before we get there, just as, an, to exp <laughs> just as a viewer, I just thought, wow. I mean, this was expensive. It was ridiculously expensive. And the ridiculous thing is, I, I, much as I adore Argento, this is one of the few shots that he's never even bothered to justify. He just wanted to do it because he knew it would look good. And it wasn't easy. It's very early days of motion control. This is 1982. And they built the top of the block of flats that they live in, in a studio. Yeah. And then they ran it up over. And it took them, I think it was their fourth attempt, to get it just right. And so we start at ground level. We rise on up. Window on one side, yeah. Then we rise up the building and then we sort of float over the roof. Is that a fair Before, As we rise up, we go into one of the rooms and then we come back out <laughs> the room and then we go up and over. It's extraordinary. And then you come down the stairs uh, through the next level and then you come back round again back to him I, picking away at the Venetian blinds. It had me feeling like I was tripping. It was mm. a really, it's, it was almost an out-of-body experience. It's an amazing shot. I mean, it's, it's a piece of genuine cinema poetry, artistry. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very well known, and it's, it's it? one of the things. Argento used to care so much about what was on screen. Um, if we do Deep Red, for example, you'll be... Profondo Rosso. Yeah, you will just be almost tearful at the beauty of some of the shots in that film. He's so good. Well, uh, yeah. And in this one, you get glimpses of that, and there is some of it, but it's a much more naturalistic film, and he throws in stuff like that just to freak you out. Well, I wanted to add that um, there used to be a tradition of movies in Italy that they call white telephone films. I don't really quite know what that, 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 but those were movies about sort of rich people with white telephones. Well, I think there should be a term, black glove movies, because I think, do you think that's what jelly are? <clears throat> the black glove thing is credited to Argento. Oh, interesting, um, is it now? And he always plays the hands of the killer. So it's always him with the black gloves. He, Argento, always plays that. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So that's why nine times out of ten the killer's shot POV, because... Argento is the hand yeah. that's holding the knife or the hand that's doing the strangling. Well, you can see why people might start to think misogyny at that point. Yes, but there's also the thing that he doesn't trust actors to do it right. Well, he knows exactly what he wants. I think yes. that's a valid argument. That's fair. Um, and I think as you, if we do more Argentos, you'll, Please. you'll get yeah. the drift. Um, the mistake, I think, possibly was doing this one first because it might have been better to see a couple of the really good ones early. Yeah. And then go on to this one and see... See what's different. ...what he's reacting to, because this is his first... Basically, he did... Um, what was first? It was Bird with Crystal Plumage was the first one. No. I can't remember. Anyway, he did the what, first... One of those animal movies, yeah, so-called. I, I, yeah. It's killing me, because I can't remember which one it is. And then they made him do another thriller afterwards that he didn't want to do. And then he did another one, and he wasn't really into it. And that's when he moved on to the horror, and he did Suspiria, and then he did Inferno... And then Inferno made bugger all money and was received quite badly. So he did that thing that all directors do. You see it with Scorsese as well. They go back to what they're known for. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, only in this case, when he went back to Tenebrae, he had something new to show, which oh, I so feel that maybe... It's interesting because it's his return to, to yeah, Jack. To, to the, and the trouble is, I feel so sorry for him because, again, like Scorsese, he becomes obsessed with that one genre. And if only these directors would just take Broad, a chance and yeah. do something else 
which we'll find with Fulci when we come to do him. Saying, there's what I regard as those three great early giallo. It sounds like you're saying he did one and the other two he did under sufferance. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. well, let's get to it when we get to them. The trouble was, he was bloody good at it. And <laughs> it, I, I think possibly in those days it was also effortless. The other thing you've got to remember is that with a shot like the one in this film, which was very expensive and not terribly easy to achieve, he, by the, at this stage, was still being funded by his uncle. So Salvatore Argento, it was his studio and it was his cool. distribution company. Yeah. So the money was still in the family. So there was a lot more trust with Argento when the money came in. Um, when his uncle died and he started to have to go to American funding, that's when things go rapidly Decline. downhill. Yeah. And this happened for all Amer uh, Italian directors, uh, is that they were doing so well for a while and then you hit that early 80s and it all falls apart. Oh, well, that's that's a shame. Um, there are a lot of good things about this one, like that that trippy sequence, that that rooftop <laughs> is amazing. Um, this is just a very small thing, but there's a bit where somebody's talking about gay people as like um, as as though they're sort of psychotics or perverts, and and uh, one of the characters defends them and just yes. there's nothing wrong with being gay, which at this time was uh, surprising and refreshing for a movie of this period. I thought it really is, and uh, they're not. No, none of the gay... Well, actually, that's not true. One of them's a murderer. Um, <laughs> yeah, it it's not plot-specific. Yeah, and it, so it just struck me as being a breath of fresh air for this kind of movie at this kind of time. The other thing that struck me is I really, really like the black dog sequence. There's a sequence in which a girl gets chased by... I guess it's a Doberman? Yeah. Yeah, and it's an, an extraordinary sequence. The problem is... But basically the point of this sequence is that this dog chases this girl and she has to jump over fences and over walls and, and uh, she ends up in the grounds of this house and then she has to take refuge in the house and it turns out to be the killer's house. Yeah. All of which would be uh, perfectly okay except this girl is sort of has been set up earlier. So the coincidence, I mean, so our hero is this American novelist and this girl is the daughter of the landlord of the building he's living in, right? Yeah. So the coincidence is just way too much. I agree. Okay, yeah. that's good. Um, yeah. But but uh, having said that, it's a fantastic sequence. That was amazing. It is. And again, a lot of Argento's films, a lot of the set pieces are based on nightmares he's had. Ooh. And the running away from the dog was a nightmare, which was the idea of... Um, and I, I'm... I, I think it's in another film, but it's not an Argento film with somebody just banging on a fence and annoying a dog, and as they walk along, suddenly well, there's no that, fence left. That's the thing. Um, also, I wanted to do a quick callback to uh, I'll Be Seeing You, hmm. which in, which also features a, a, a dog, dog attack. Yes, dog attack. Similar <laughs> dog attack. So I wondered if that was a thing. But what happens is this girl, who, who's been set up as the cute daughter of the landlord, uh, is goes off with her boyfriend on a motorbike, and they've Obviously, had a, then we cut back to them after they've had an argument. We've got no idea what the argument's about, but she gets off the bike, motorbike and is going to walk home. She's startled. Well, she actually has the shit scared out of her by this black dog, uh, this uh, Doberman, suddenly leaping at her from behind a fence and barking. All, 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 so she's, you know, she's, she's uh, shocked and angry, all which makes sense. But then she does this unforgivable thing that she starts tormenting the dog by bashing a piece of wood against <laughs> against the uh, the fence which is between her and the dog so one doesn't quite feel so much on her side when the dog manages to climb the fence this dog is really good at climbing fences he, he does it a couple times in his pursuit of <laughs> so she sort of slightly had it coming and the other thing with that sequence is it's so well lit I mean it's really well lit 
that is not an easy sequence to shoot because you've got to keep the backgrounds as black as possible, but you need to see the action. Because it's taking place at night? Yeah, so they've presumably got one key light on her, and that is it. So you don't want to be casting shadows, you don't want to be lighting up anything surrounding it. It's very, very well shot. Well, I didn't notice any of that because I was so caught up in it. I think it's an amazing <laughs> set piece and I really liked it. Some of the other set... I'm, I'm going to have to take issue with a couple of set pieces. There's one in which uh, this woman gets her arm lopped off yes. and it falls on the table and it's it's the wrong colour. It's like a really white plastic arm spouting blood. A lot of that is down to the grading of that sequence. Oh, and so the reason it's lit yeah. and shot that way is to get that blood on the wall. So the whole sequence is, the colours are all over the place in that sequence. So that's a kind of post-production flaw. Um, well, I think, it, yeah, possibly. I mean, the, the effects, I can't remember who I laughed, did Tenebrae. When she got her arm cut up, I have to say I laughed. I laughed and I thought of a Monty Python skit called Salad Days by Sam Peckinpah. Right. Okay. <laughs> if anybody knows what that is. But um, I was laughing because it, not, obviously not because some poor woman's having her arm lopped up, but because it looked so terribly phony. Did you not think that was a good sequence, though? I thought that that sequence was... Come on, you didn't guess the arm was going to get cut off. No, I mean, it was generally quite a good sequence, but at the very end of the film, the killer is impaled by this modern art statue, and it's so badly done that I thought... It's as though some invisible assailant had stabbed him. I thought, oh, what happened? Oh, it's that bloody statue we saw earlier. Somebody else killed by their arm. Not... uh, Well... It might be a really cool theme, but it's not a very well-engineered uh, sequence, is it? I think it is, because it, it all comes down to coincidence again. It's just an unfortunate sequence well, of events. I didn't see how this spiky bit of this sculpture ended up impaling him. I just didn't see how it, how it happened. It got knocked over. Yeah, but if I have to rewind to make sense of it, it didn't work. It does. <laughs> it didn't if, work I mean, for me. If that didn't work, did you at least catch up, uh, work out who the two killers were? I couldn't guess who the killers were. My, I thought it was going to be the agent's, John Saxon, the agent's young uh, teenage assistant because he seemed so wholesome and nice. And he was a very nice guy. Is it because of that video link he's got in his office that makes no sense at all? The video link is kind of weird, but <laughs> I was, no, it was mostly because he's wearing these really kind of um, uh, I'm a nice boy sweaters. Mm. <laughs> okay. Wholesome, wholesome family sweaters, and also because he's presented as this very nice chap, he's always really helpful. So I just thought maybe it was him, but I couldn't guess who the. But you see, my part of my problem with not guessing who the hell the killer was, I wasn't sure this movie was going to make any sense, and it does kind of make sense. Yeah. There's a. So if anybody wants to avoid spoilers, just don't listen for the next ten seconds. But basically, there's a great Agatha quit. I can't even say Agatha Christie twist, insofar as it, it turns out there's two killers. Yeah. So um, you got one killer. So basically, what happens is it. You know it can't be Peter Neal. Yeah. It can't be him doing the killings because he's had phone calls and everything else. There's alibis up the wazoo. And at no point do you know, well, not until quite late in the day, that the real killer has been killed. That comes very late in the day when um, the kids remembering it in the car. So there's been kind of a handover, right? Yeah. So suddenly what's happened is that Neal has killed the original killer and that triggers him to start killing again. Um, oh, so was he a killer before, Pete? Yeah, that, that's his flashbacks um, back to the woman in white with the red shoes. Oh, that was my other note on this. Mm. That those scenes in the scenes about a beautiful girl in in Rhode Island, uh, basically running around naked on the beach and eventually getting killed. There was never a woman who looked like that in Rhode Island. That's my main note on that sequence. <laughs> well, in many ways, you're right because it's a trans actor. Oh, really? And it was lost in the writing or something in the script, but the idea was was that um, it was a man, and 
he knew it, Peter Neal knew it was a man, but he was concerned that he was attracted to this. So the girl with red shoes was uh, played by a transsexual actor? Yes. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, so... I it... thought I'd seen her in something else. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah, I'm just having a quick look through the uh, the cast. Right. I, I, I have no idea what else she did. Um, but yeah, uh, that was a plot point that got kind of lost down the down the line somewhere. And I think it's probably maybe one plot situation too many. Also, possibly, uh, Argento was concerned that if that was a motivation for killing, it kind of defunct, sort of defunct, uh, what's the word, uh, debunks what we discussed earlier about how it's got positive yeah. gay yeah. Uh, representation in it. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, so anyway, so that that's it's a very convoluted plot, but it does have it is quite cleverly plotted. From what you're saying, it's more clever than I thought. Like if I was to watch it again, I'd find that it all fits together quite neatly. Clothing comes into it as well. Um, did you notice how many people are wearing white in that film? No, but I assume that that's something to do with blood showing up on it really good. It can be, but it's also because we've got these flashbacks of this person in white with red shoes with dark hair. And then we see a lot of other people with red shoes, white dress and dark hair as the film goes on. And Daria Nicolaidi as well, quite often she's wearing um, white dresses. And the idea is that we... Which one is Daria Nicolaidi? Uh, she was Peter Neal's agent. Uh, that's also Daria Argento's wife. She died uh, last week. But his agent is John Saxon. John Saxon's agent, she's his manager. So she's oh, yeah. the assistant. She, oh, she was great. Yeah. She is really good. That's not actually her voice. That was Teresa Russell's voice. Ah, yeah. yeah, I just saw it on the IMDb listing. Oh, is it really? <laughs> yeah, but I did think that she was terrific. I was really relieved. There's a bit where you think she's been killed, and it's and it's actually the female cop, and I was tremendously relieved it wasn't her. It is her screaming at the end, though. That is her scream. Okay. So that's good. Um, for her performance, we need to watch Deep Red, because her and David Hemmings are fantastic together. Oh, I like David Hemmings. Yeah. And she also co-wrote Suspiria. In fact, Argento oh. credits her with the script more than himself. Fantastic. Uh, so anyway, and she's Dario Argento's mum. Dario Argento uh, wrote and directed this. Oh, and so she was his wife, and she yeah, yeah, your Argento's mother. Fabulous. Okay, so mm, I want to see other and earlier hmm. uh, Gialli by uh, by Argento. Also, I want to see Suspiria again. I'd love to love to do that. There's, so there's uh, a lot going for this film. There's there's some really nice editing in there as well. I, I think you're being harsh on it. I the, am being harsh on it. I'm the sorry. The axe killing of the first murderer. Uh, okay. Uh, I, it was that is very I, well cut well I don't know it's at times like this I'm reminded of the monster squad where the kids are going on about how great this movie is and the father says this plot son it's a guy with an axe <laughs> so I think you could say that about any Hitchcock film couldn't you it's just someone with a knife it's just someone with a gun well no I, I actually wanted to get that gag into our Friday the 13th podcast and I forgot so oh I'm okay just, so you, you just wanted to get the gag I did want to get just get the gag in <laughs> I'm going to cut it now when I edit this. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, so I'm sorry I didn't love that more, but I can't give it my two, two thumbs up. Sorry. I think it gives I, us more to talk about. It, it's, it would be it boring if we both liked everything. Uh, uh, but I did think John Saxon's jacket is really nice. I quite want one of those. Because oh. anybody out there is listening, who happens well, to be an Italian couturier. We're two weeks away from Christmas. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. No worries. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. If someone is killed with a Smith & Wesson revolver, 
you go and interview the president of smith and wesson?